Well, thanks for listening to the A-Podcast, the podcast that focuses on the southern resident killer whales, J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod. I'm Allison Morrow, and today Sam Wasser is our guest. Sam has been studying poop with the killer whales, and also that relates to all of his work on the illegal trafficking of ivory around the world. Right, Sam? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so there's a lot to talk about. How should we start this? Maybe we take it back to the whales. Does that sound like a good place to start? Sure. Yeah, Tell yeah. us a little bit about the studies that you started looking at the poop from the southern resident killer whales. Yeah. Um, so you may wonder why poop. Um, the, it's the most accessible animal product that there is. And um, many of the things from the body are excreted in the fecal samples. So stress hormones, reproductive hormones, nutrition hormones, toxins, DNA, DNA of the animal, DNA of what it ate. So the microbiome of the animal, there are so much information in a scat sample that um, it, it's just, it's, I'd say but it's golden. And the beauty of it is, is that it's the most accessible animal product in nature. So um, we, uh, the whales were a little bit more of a challenge, but um, uh, but there there are lots of places where um, you need a, a better tool to find the samples. Um, we started detection dog using detection dogs for this in 1997 um, because they're extremely good at finding these samples. If you hike through the woods, there's obviously lots of poop in there, but you never see it. The dogs do. And uh, we have studies, for example, on wolves where, you know, uh, five months of field work and the dogs bring back 4,000 samples. Just to give you a, a feel for it, um, killer whales will get maybe 150 samples a year if, from one dog if the whales are showing up and as you know they haven't been showing up very much because there's no fish. So you're studying poop to get all this information but what do we really want to know about it as it relates to recovery for the whales? Yeah well um, our, our work up till now has been able to establish why are they not having any babies and that's to me is the most important element to, to look at here because if you're going to recover, you've got to produce offspring. And over since 2010, there there have been an average of 30 adult female whales in in the three pods that are um, the southern residents, J, K, and L pod. And they have a five-year interbirth interval, so which means that they should be having about 30 whales should be having a, an on average six births a year, and they've averaged you know two, one some years at zero. There, there's only been one real peak year um, in uh, 2015. What we've been able to do is to measure stress, nutrition, reproductive hormones, and toxins in the scat as well as DNA. So when we get a sample, we can say, okay, who is it? male or female, uh, was it stressed out, was it nutritionally compromised, and how much toxins were in the sample, and how did this all relate to each other. So by doing that and getting a good temporal sequence of scat samples over time, we're able to see that when the fish are low, the nutritional stress in the whales are highest. When that's highest, the toxins are also highest in the scat. Why? Because all those toxins are bioaccumulated in fat over the lifetime of the whale. When they start to starve, they burn their fat, dump it into their circulation, and they get a double whammy, and they abort 69% of their conceptions. About a third of those are late abortions, late spontaneous abortions, miscarriages, which are 
extremely costly for the animal because if an animal aborts a fetus and it doesn't all come out, then they die of infection. And in fact, there have been um, one, there's one whale recently that died, came up on shore, and it was autopsied, and indeed it had a fetus in it and it was rotten. The value of this type of sampling is it gives you the kind of data that you really need to be able to put the whole picture together and it allows a temporal sequencing over time so we can see you know what's the situation with the whales when they first arrive in late May early June and there's and the Fraser River run is not yet um, anywhere near its peak and they don't the, the fish in Fraser River the Chinook which is the only salmon that they're eating this time of year um, doesn't peak until the middle of August so they've got it really sustain themselves for for quite a, a, a long time period and we can see how the health of the animal changes as the nutrition available, the food available to them increases and then decreases again. We also can see the other runs that are potentially important for these whales and this is a really critical point because everyone's been focused on the Fraser River but our work suggests that while that is extremely important Perhaps even more important is the Columbia River Early Spring Chinook. And we realize this because when the whales first arrive in the Harrow Strait, the Strait of Juan de Fuca, you know, the area off the, um, you know, between Vancouver Island and, and the San Juan Islands, um, they, there's, in May, June, the Fraser's River Chinook runs are at a low point. But, but when they first arrive, we measure two different hormones. We measure cortisol which measures um, not only emotional stress, disturbance stress, but, but it also is a very important measure of nutritional stress because what cortisol does is it mobilizes glucose. It gives you energy to respond to emergency. One emergency is I don't have any food, I need energy to find it. But you have to be careful because if the animal is, is um, continues to produce cortisol and mobilizing more glucose, they're going to run out of reserves. Well, another hormone is very important in this whole nutritional sequence, and that's thyroid hormone, which we also measure. Thyroid hormone controls your metabolism. So when you are running out of food, an animal typically lowers thyroid hormone to lower its metabolism. So it slows the rate that you use up your remaining reserves. So that's thyroid hormone is kind of like a thermostat. It's more slow acting than cortisol and it kind of gauges how quickly you're, you're, you're burning through your, your food. When you first um, 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 start to uh, run out of food, thyroid hormone doesn't yet go down because um, cortisol is going up, it's giving you more energy and you need to have a high metabolism to use it to find food. But pretty soon it's, you're, the, the body is, is starting to realize that, that um, it's going to get in trouble if it keeps operating like that. So then thyroid hormone plummets, lowers the metabolism. Cortisol still keeps going up, but this is kind of putting the brakes on a little bit. And, and that's kind of the state that the whales are in most of the time um, in, during the summer. Also the time when whale watch boats are on them, there's not that much fish, and the boats themselves may not be so bad, but when you have have all this extra disturbance that it's creating for them and there's no fish and it's making it hard for them to catch the fish, then it's this whole cascade of problems that really needs to be addressed. And, and up till now, most of the legislation is focused on the boats because that's the easiest and it's the thing that is hardest to watch. Right. But too little has, attention has been paid to the, 
fish. Now, so I started this whole sequence talking about the importance of Columbia River, early spring Chinook. So you imagine now it's the end of October, the animals are going out there along the coast of the Pacific, um, and they it's getting cold, they're trying to thermoregulate, they're burning up energy more quickly, they no longer have these big adults going up the stream, the mouths of these streams to spawn, they're, they're eating the whole um, age distribution of fish and whatever thing, other things they're eating, nobody really knows because nobody studies them in the winter, um, but certainly we know that that's the hardest time for them and when they start coming back in the spring, they're spent. Well, they hit that Columbia River and the early spring Chinook moving up the Columbia River are about the fattest fish <laughs> in the world, perhaps. I mean, they are really they're 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 big and they're fat, and because because they're they go about 900 miles to spawn, and once soon as they hit that river, they stop eating. So they've got to come in with a lot of reserves. So that resource is absolutely pivotal to these whales and we first realized this because as I was saying when they arrive in the Harrow Straits in, in uh, late May early June cortisol is going through the roof because there's no fish but thyroid hormone is still very very high which suggests they came in after eating a really good food source. And we kept thinking, well, what is that? And we realized it's got to be this Columbia River Chinook run. And when I first suggested this, people were saying we were crazy. And then Noah put tags on these whales. And sure enough, in April, they are just sitting at the mouth of the Columbia River feeding and why, feeding. Why did people think you were crazy? Well, how would I know? I'm, I'm getting data in, in June, and I'm talking about what's happening in April. And, and May. And, um, and there's a lot of politics around this because all of a sudden Columbia River, Snake River Dam, blah, blah, blah. Fishing. And, and um, you know, but you were trying to put this whole picture together and it just makes sense. And sure enough, when they put tags on these whales, they found out that's where they were hanging out in, in the late spring. And, and it was, uh, if you imagine, so you come in and you're spent from the winter and now you, you um, are getting a replenishment of your reserves by this really fat-laden big Chinook. And now you go out and you come up to the Fraser River, but the food hasn't really started to become very, is not yet very abundant. And you've got to wait all the way till the middle of August. Well, if you don't get a good replenishment in the spring, you're cooked. So that whole sequence of events are really important and, and you know we were able to put all that together from poop this is pretty exciting and we've got a uh, government task force right now trying to decide what to do and you know what about the snake river dam now to be realistic here it's going to be years and years and years until we could take down that dam if if that was even decided. Some say you could do it tomorrow if... Well, I don't... I, 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 sure, you could do anything in a day, but, but just think about all the, you know... Fighting Politics and, and right. you know, I mean, it's not real... Yeah, yeah you could, but, but it's not realistic. But the thing is, what bothers me is that people say it's so far down the road that that shouldn't even be on the table right now. But then you're just continuing to do short-term fixes and there's no long-term 
plan here and you know so this, this the problem is not going to go away and we really need to have a short-term and long-term plan here and and uh, I really think that that dam is an important issue uh, we don't know for sure that that um, it's the problem I, I I think it is but but more work needs to be done but if everything is kind of moving us in a different direction that, that, that's a problem you know this last month has been quite a goat rodeo um, because we had J35 who lost her offspring was moving it around on you know pushing it around for two weeks and you know the public was just uh, outraged by this whole happening and uh, then there's J50 who um, was clearly nutritionally spent and um, you know everybody and their brother is out there trying to figure out how to save this whale but you know the, the problem is is that those are those are the symptoms of a much bigger problem and the thing that drives me crazy about something like that is that you know when you get to this urgent situation everybody is oh my god what are we going to do but you know what about all the time leading up to that how long do we have to keep saying this i mean you know we've been saying this in paper in 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 publications um certainly since 2012 and there's other people that have been saying this like ken dalcom much longer than that and you know nobody listens so you don't buy it when when you might hear from the feds oh well now we just had new information so we can tackle the problems differently you're saying they've had the information oh, for god's for sakes years. that's ridiculous of course that information has been out there for a long long time years years so why now do we have a task force why now do uh people seem to be uh, trying to take somewhat drastic actions that have even been very controversial. Um, and do you feel like it's too late at this point, or do you uh, think it's worth the fight? Sadly, I, I do think it, it, it may be too late. It's always worth the fight, because if you don't fight, you don't know. I mean, how do we know whether it's worth the fight? But I, I had uh, funding from Washington Sea Grant for four years, and then yeah, that, that's a long time to get a, a, a grant from them, and so that funding went away. And then um, next year, there was, we had no funding, so we weren't really on the water at all. And then we got funding from the National Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation for two years. Last year was our first year. And um, no whales. So we sat there on the water, and there were no whales. And I, I think that that finally shocked people because the whales were clearly not coming because there was no fish and there's no fish this year either it's a little better but there's still hardly any whales around at all and and you know people that have been studying this long term have seen these changes going on that the um amount of time the whales spend milling, the, the uh, super pods are decreasing, you know, all the stuff that you watch and is so spectacular to see, it's not happening anymore. And that's actually a good transition for elephants. I will say though, it, yeah. for you and, and others like Ken Balcom, like people who have for a long time been looking at this issue, you've got to feel in some part like you're going a little insane. At yeah. least I would feel like I'm going insane. Yeah, yeah, it, it is crazy. And then imagine doing the whales and then you're doing elephants and you know they're <laughs> crashing it's like what, what does the matter with me i'm just a I know. masochist how do you not just move off to a cabin to the middle of nowhere yeah. and just give up on it well all? i do do that sometimes <laughs> that helps That's true but, but. let's transition to ivory by first could you explain how 
whales and ivory are in any way related. Yeah, well, well, one thing, so I just finished a 10-month sabbatical, and my last two months I spent in Tanzania, which is um, the uh, biggest hotspot for poaching in Africa, which we were able to identify with our DNA work. Um, and, and just the, the really nice transition between the whales and the elephants is one of the things I did during that time in Tanzania was I visited elephants from the most heavily poached part of Africa in the Salu Game Reserve, which is where more poaching has occurred than anywhere else for at least the last decade, and went all the way north um, through Tanzania up to southern Kenya into Samburu, which is probably the, uh, Samburu and Amboseli, the two places where elephants are probably safest in Africa. And I was watching the behavior, looking at the tusk size of these elephants and their observability and their comfort level. Um, and I'm telling you, it was such a remarkable experience because like the killer whales where they stopped all that wonderful social behavior because life is hard now, they saw the same thing with elephants. I mean, I went into the Salu, which historically had, you know, well over 100,000 elephants. Now they're down to 12,000 elephants, which you may say is still a lot of elephants, but that's 55,000 square kilometers. I mean, that's Rhode Island. So, so the decline of those elephants over time has been enormous, and now they're hard to find. And not only that, when you do find them, they're scared to death. So we spent four days in the slough, and I, used, I worked there in that area most of my life, and you used to see them every day easily. And we went four days, didn't see any elephants, and finally the last day, because people were really looking hard because it just totally happened there was also a BBC travel film crew there trying to also film the elephants and they couldn't find them so people were working hard to find them. So the last day we found them and it was one massive group of elephants because it was four different families all together which is unusual. They do that when they're so stressed out and freaked out they, they, they don't stay in their normal family groups. and so. Starting in that transition, and, 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 and plus there's a, lot of, there's a lot of interaction going on, but it's not familial interaction. It's like, you know, working out the, the differences of trying to stay in this group together and move around. And, and going from there through uh, Ruaha National Park, which is the second most poached area in Africa, but, but it's been stopped for a while. Can I ask you, when you're saying first mode, second mode, like how many elephants a day are we talking, or week? Any idea? Well, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that I saw? No, poached. Like, oh, when you say it's the most heavily, like, are we talking 100 a day, so 50 there, a day? So there, on average, is 40,000 elephants killed a year in Africa. And um, more are killed in the slough than any other time. So in a period, about a five-year period, they went from 100,000 to 12,000. So I don't know how many are killed in a wow, day. Incredible. But you can imagine, that's a lot of thousands. Yeah. And so that's 90% that's of the population killed in five years. So of the area that was the the largest elephant population in Africa. I mean, Botswana now is higher, but it's an artificial situation because the elephants are fenced in a in a uh, in a closed area. But so so you can see the the stress of this on these animals. So going from that population all the way up through 
Samburu, which was absolutely the most amazing because those elephants are studied really intensively by Ian Douglas Hamilton and and they're used to people and and you know the elephants walk right up to your vehicle I mean we were in we were in their vehicle so they're used to them but I mean they were so close that literally I could touch them like this and to see the extent of social behavior in that group you know uh, uh, there are babies all over the place and there and big tuskers you know whereas in the Salu there's nothing but little tiny tusks now because all the big tuskers have been killed and you know they get in these mud walls and like the babies and the adults they're just all playing with each other in this big mass and you wonder how do they not even crush these little babies and they're so interactive and playful and a baby may you know um, let out a little distress call and you know the mom just kind of looks up because to see okay your does big sister have them and all the big sisters are right there helping them and it's just like it's like honestly it was like two different species of elephants I, I, I was just awestruck so that's really similar to what's going on in these distressed whales um, in terms of, of the, the, that's the big pressure. That's the pressure that people can see. How the relationships and just normal behavior is yeah. affected. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the Samburu is what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So uh, so then how do you take your the stuff that you can't see, which is like what you've now have tested with the poop in the Southern Residence and have translated that into the research that you're doing with ivory trafficking? How, how, do, how do you switch from one gear to the next? How does the science work? Well, it all goes on concurrently. So if we have funding for it. So um, and. But start, tell us about the database, like how you started mapping. Yeah, sure. The so elephants. So. You know, um, uh, let's go back to 1981. I got the year I was born. A great year. Oh, good. Okay, so that was the year I got my PhD. So I guess I'm, I could be your father. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a lot to teach, Sam. So I'm, I'm listening closely. So um, most of our studies in the up until 1997, you had to see the animal poop because you had to know who it was because we couldn't get DNA out of the samples, and so I was driven to figure out could I get DNA out of the, the the samples and I had this epiphany where I was working with a colleague at USDA who also was studying colon cancer and he was measuring um, um, cells in feces of people and I thought you know he was actually had a way to isolate different cells um, um, through this odd machine called a stomacher which it's really gross. I won't go into it. <laughs> but um, I realize he's getting whole cells out of the scat. So obviously we can get DNA. So now I'm driven. And by 1997, my lab and a few other labs also, we had figured out how to get DNA from feces. So now that meant that we could get samples from these animals and you didn't have to see them poop. So you could figure out who they were without that because I could use DNA. I could tell their species. I could tell their sex. I could even tell their individual identity. And it turns out we could even tell what they ate. So all of a sudden, it opened up this whole new world. And and by this time, I had already shifted um, from wild baboons to elephants. The reason that shift actually happened was because of the ivory trade. 
because I was working in the most heavily poached area in Africa. And I'm studying baboons on foot. We're walking with them all day long, running into poachers, not uncommonly having to leave, call the rangers in to tell them where the poachers were operating, running into elephant skulls all the time, for, or carcasses. And, and it was just very distressful, very distressing. And when um, eventually there was a turning point in Tanzania, um, where uh, they got a new director of wildlife and the previous one was kicked out for corruption for ivory um, involvement and the new uh, director of wildlife a man named Kostum Lai was just a godsend. Um, he was formerly a security officer for President Nyerere um, in, in Tanzania, Tanzania's first president and he had a very powerful man and really insightful and he turned things around and they started with this program called Operation New High where they got the wildlife division, the police, and the military to join forces. They gathered intelligence for about six months mm. and when they were ready they came in and they stopped all poaching in the country almost overnight. It was amazing. Brutal, but amazing. Wow. So that was fantastic and I was, I, I was indirectly part of that effort of my dear friends were funding it and I was helping you know a, a, as I could so I was starting to get involved in it and then at this point we had three baboon troops that we've been studied since 1974 now it's 1989 and two troops of 70 one of 20 and right at the point of Operation New High, when all of a sudden all the poaching was stopped, leopards started coming out of the woodwork and killing our baboons. And I'm going, what is going on here? And what we, we eventually realized that those leopards had, for so many years, had so much fresh meat from poached animals that they had really good recruitment and there were a lot of them. And then all of a sudden, overnight, there's no food. Incredible. So they started killing wow. our baboons. And within the first six months, our group of 20 was completely dead. Get out. And by about, took about two years, but our two troops of 70 were down to 12 animals each. And then they fused together after being separated for 16 years and and we lost four generations of baboons and I'm studying their social behavior and how it affects reproduction all of a sudden all the family ties everything was gone Unbelievable. and I'm going the, the thing that's most amazing about that is baboons are are looked at as vermin in Africa because they're crop raiders but we're studying wild ones I mean I, I, I actually I mean the baboons were the the most wonderful part of my life studying them because they're so damn smart. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't they couldn't control them for anything. And here's something that has nothing to do with the baboons leads to their demise. And then you start I started thinking, well what about all the, you know, lesser abundant species that are more at risk, you know, and and it just kind of hit me how everything was interconnected and I lost all of my you know the foundations of our study that we had worked years to do at night. So I switched elephants. And our first studies was using the hormones to measure the stress of poaching on these social groups. And um, um, we did two studies, uh, one with um, a graduate student from Princeton, Charles Foley, who's now uh, the WCS representative in Tanzania, and then my um, graduate student in um, um, who did her PhD in actually Mikumi National Park in southern Tanzania, where I did um, this 
all the, the baboon work. Um, she's now at the Paul Allen Foundation, and um, her study was especially impactful because she was able to use DNA um, and and the uh, to measure the relatedness in these family groups and could see the families that had a really disrupted relatedness pattern because the animals were pulled out at random, you could see from the DNA were highly poached versus the ones that had a more intact relatedness pattern that you would predict with normal mortality. And then she was able to measure the stress levels and reproduction all in poop of, of the two groups and found that the, the animals in the more heavily poached groups were far more stressed and the females in the reproductive prime were not having good reproductive performance at all. So you could just kind of, again, poop, mm -hmm. showing you this. And so meanwhile, um, now we're driven to get these DNA from feces. In 1997, finally we got it. This is a little out of sequence because she did her work in 2007. Um, and um, when we got DNA from feces, I it, it immediately hit me. I, I could get DNA across the continent of Africa. You know, an elephant poop weighs 25 pounds. That's pretty easy to see. Right. And and I had now been working in Africa since 1974, so I knew lots of people there. And I thought I could get samples across the whole continent, characterize the different populations based on their genetic differences. The more time populations are separated from each other, and the farther apart they are the more mutations accumulate and they become genetically distinct. So you can use the DNA in the different populations to tell them apart. And so we started in about 2004, uh, no, actually about 2000, about in 2000 to start collecting samples across El Africa from, and, and getting DNA. By 2004, we published our first big paper in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences where we were able to show the accuracy of this method and that we could take those reference dung samples out and we could um, um, then see if we could use the, um, the gene frequencies or allele frequencies across the whole continent of Africa to reassign them back based on the DNA and the samples we pulled out to see you know, wh which population do, are they, do they fit best in. And, and we were able to assign them their origin with really high accuracy. I can't remember what it was back then, but in our paper, recent paper in Science in 2015, we showed that we can get a DNA sample from any elephant to within about 300 kilometers of where the animal actually came from, sometimes to the very park because there's only one population of elephants within that area. So now we have very high accuracy. You can site-specific map yeah. basically these elephants to their populations yeah. and then that helps you then figure out where if you find their tusks somewhere down the line where it came from. Exactly and and the last piece of the puzzle was could we get DNA out of ivory? Nobody had done that yet. People had um, had uh, been able to get DNA from the tissue on the outside of a tusk that, you know, but only 5% of the tusks have that tissue on it. Um, and uh, we were then driven to crack that nut. Now, I, I love collaborating with people because, you know, I'm a professor at a major university. There's someone here that does everything, <laughs> you know, and, and, lucky, yeah. and so I, when I get a new problem, I just, I look through the roster of faculty to see who's here and I went. What's their reaction when they get a call from oh, Sam Oh, they love it. They <laughs> love it because, you know, I'm going to the medical school, the dental school, and they're like, you know, 
you know, they're doing the same old thing all the time. I mean, obviously they're passionate about what they do, but here they have a chance to apply their tools to something that maybe they love as a hobby, right. you know, and totally if you get different. the right person, oh my God. And so I went to the dental school <laughs> and I went up to the um, associate dean of the dental school and I said, do you know anybody that's getting DNA out of teeth? And they go, you know, there's this guy in um, Vancouver, Canada named David Sweet who works for BOLD, the Bureau of Legal Dentistry, and which is kind of like the FBI equivalent of and, and I was going to say, it must be somebody who's doing autopsies or yeah, crime yeah, reports or something uh, like that. Contact him. So I called him and, uh, and he said, oh yeah, we'd love to help you. And, and um, he said, you know, just bring your, your samples up to Canada. Well, I couldn't because it was a CITES violation to take ivory across the border. So he said, no problem, I'll bring my stuff down. So he came down with this machine called the freezer mill which is really was the game changer, because game changer because people in the past have been trying to get DNA out of ivory but they by grinding it and heating it up and just degrading the DNA. Mm. This freezer mill was a really cool device. It's a little box. We have one in the other room if you want to photograph it. Okay. And and um, it goes into a little um, uh, uh, polycarbonate tube with a magnet and two stainless steel plugs. And you put a piece of ivory in about this size um, in, into the machine and you drop it down into liquid nitrogen which gets the ivory brittle cold to about minus 240 degrees Celsius. Stop real and fast and some people listening to the podcast they don't know what when you did your hand what what size is that like a baseball? The size of a when you did you said you take it about this size. Oh no this size. Oh this size the, the pinky. The first digit of your baby oh, finger. Oh so small. Yeah of your baby finger not mine. Okay. Yeah and and um and uh, so a small piece and um, you drop it down into liquid nitrogen and you close the lid and um, it's got a magnet in there and then you shift the magnetic field back and forth about 10 times per second and it's pummeling, the magnet's pummeling that little piece of ivory that's now brittle cold and will shatter if you drop that on the ground against those stainless steel plugs. Within a minute and a half it comes out like baby powder and the DNA is perfectly protected because it's been so cold when you did that process. Why, did, why does the heat affect it, if the, the opposite? The, the, the heat degrades the DNA. So it's just a physical phenomenon. It breaks the chemical bonds and, and, and just causes everything to and the un unravel. The heat comes from the grinding. Yes, okay. yes. So this way you're not grinding it, so it stays cold, so yes. you can still get the same effect of yes. turning it into a powder, but you yeah. still preserve the DNA. Got it. Yeah, and then we mix it with a chemical um, and uh, and we soak it for about three days. It just sits in a little rotator going like this. And um, by that time, the it separates all the minerals from the DNA and you can just extract it and use the same DNA methods you use on any kind of DNA. And it worked beautifully. Um, uh, over time, we perfected that method even further because we, you know, we're, we're always doing these experiments to figure out how can you make things better. This is a, a typical tusk. There's lines that go this way. They're called Schrager lines that tells you this is an African elephant. And, and if you look right here, look, there's a, a, a whiter layer right there that's just about a millimeter thick that you don't see the Schrager lines on. Right at the, the, the top, it's called the cementum layer. And that is where the DNA is most dense. 
This part here still has DNA in it, but it's also packed with all these minerals. And so we've done experiment after experiment. You can see this is cut because, you know, we, we, we cut these samples all the time to figure out different, you know, to do these different tests. And it turns out that this is, is really high density DNA. And so now when we go to do a sample, we take a little piece of this off and we take it to um, a very, very skilled person operating a bandsaw, and he cuts that layer off. And we put that in the freezer mill now, and our yield doubled. Our ability to amplify successful DNA doubled. And we're looking at nuclear DNA. Um, for a lot of the forensic works where they're trying to get just the species of the animal, they're looking at m mitochondrial DNA. So the difference is, is that mitochondria are the things, the energy producing parts of the cell, they're not in the nucleus, they, and there's lots of it. So there's about a thousand times more mitochondrial DNA than nuclear DNA. So you have to be much more efficient to do the kind of work that we're doing um, because we have to be able to get a, a much less abundant DNA. So we needed to maximize the utility of that. Anyways, got a little bit off. Why do you need that DNA versus mitochondrial DNA? The kind of DNA that we use is called microsatellite DNA. It's the same DNA that the FBI uses in their criminal database called CODIS. It's the same DNA that um, Interpol uses in their international criminal database. And the, the um, there's lots of it in the genome, whereas the mitochondrial DNA is pretty much on one chromosome, one circular chromosome, and it's um, um, uh, um, highly variable, but it's just, it gives you one, one uh, group of, of um, things to look at, um, one group, group of genetic markers to look at. I'll, I'll give you an, ex an analogy. Let's say you were trying to tell people apart, and you were just using one thing, like hair color. Well, it wouldn't work very well, right? right? But if you use eye color, if you use skin tone, if you use the hair color, the hair curl, how heavy weight the person is, you know, their complexion, all of those things allow you to look in an audience of 100 people right there, and you could tell every single person apart. It may take you a little while to remember it, but immediately you can do that because you've got a lot of different things to add the complexity. So mitochondrial is like using hair color only, whereas microsatellite DNA gives you many, many different markers. But more importantly than that, um, most DNA, uh, we think about genes. So genes code, code for protein, and those have been under natural selection for millions of years so that those genes that are coding for, for functionality are very adaptive. And when you get a mutation in those genes, very often it's bad it's because you know, it's purified over so many years. But microsatellite DNA is kind of like, um, it, it doesn't really code for proteins. It's almost like, it, we don't really know for sure, but it's almost like spacer DNA. It spaces out the genes. And so when you get a mutation, doesn't hurt the animal. So they accumulate over time and they, they you have a faster rate of mutations and so you can those populations yeah those populations that have been separated for a long time, those the mutations are accumulating at a much faster weight rate, which means that they're much it's a much better tool to be able to distinguish um, individuals because you have more variation and lots of it. So that's why the FBI uses that DNA. That's why we use the DNA. But the FBI um, CODIS um, criminal database used historically 13 markers. We use 16. Even gives us higher precision and that is why we can tell a sample um, from an elephant 
uh, to where it came from to within 300 kilometers. Okay, and because again, first you had mapped out the DNA using the scat. Exactly. And now you are creating the other side of the puzzle, which is the DNA from the ivory, and yes. then you can put the two together. Yes. So how does that then help what you're really after, oh. which is to stop poaching? Yeah, so that's really the crux of all this. So this is just kind of the nerdy science part so far. Well, so the big problem with transnational organized crimes is that um, they, they have taken off in the last decade really all of the major crimes. It's now over a $2 trillion industry if you take all the different transnational crimes, narcotics, weapons, human trafficking, wildlife, um, cyber crimes. And Part of the reason for that escalation over the last decade has been an enormous increase in the shipping industry. Um, in 2009, the industry crashed, and so the, the cost of shipping went way, way down. And now, if you measure the, those containers you see on ships um, in 20-foot equivalent units, either they're 20 feet or 40 feet, the containers, there's one billion of those containers moved around the world each year. So if you're a transnational criminal, all you've got to do is take your contraband, get it containerized, because container, container you can put a huge amount of stuff in there, and get it into transit. If you can get it into transit and get it on that ship and out the door, you've got it made. Because even the best ports, U.S., Hong Kong, we can inspect at most 2% of the containers moving through. So that means that... that you got a pretty good chance to get out. Yeah, 98% of the things you ship get through and 2% get caught. And then if you're making $2 million on each shipment and you lose $2 million once, but you've made, you know, um, $186 million in the process, it's big, big whoop. Right. So, so we wanted to develop methods that allowed law enforcement to track the trade before their contraband gets into transit. And what we realized is that if we could tell where the ivory was actually being poached, that could allow law enforcement to go to the target and really hit the, where the, 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 the killing is beginning. Not only does it prevent it from getting into transit, we had hoped, it also prevents the animals from being killed in the first place. So, you know, once you get a big seizure of ivory, they're already dead. If you can stop the killing, that's even better. So you get the say in this most recent case right okay so you there's a there's a bust you find ivory you get the dna from it then you track it back to where it came from then what happens yeah. they so, just put so increased law enforcement there and try to find whoever did it or they just try to protect the rest of the animals that are there what how, did, how does that yeah. all that work so so first of all um we focus only on seizures that are a minimum of a half a ton of ivory, at least 500 kilos. And the reason for that is that those are the ones that bear the signature of major organized crime. So, you How know, many elephants is that? Two tusks, each weigh five kilos, which is conservative because now they probably weigh closer to three kilos. Mm -hmm. Let's just say five kilos, make it math easier. So 10 kilos is one elephant. So 10 kilos of ivory that you get is going to be represent one elephant, except that what you seize conservatively is 10% of what's smuggled. And some people say, really, it's closer to 5%, but let's just say it's 10%. So that means 10 kilos, 10% of 10 kilos is one kilo. So one kilo is one elephant, okay? So if we're talking 500 kilos, that's 500 elephants. Wow. Okay. It's a lot. It's a lot. So you only go after these big 
big busts. Big busts because they're those are seizures that are worth um, about a minimum of a million dollars. This is somebody who's put a lot of thought into it and probably not just one person. You betcha, and they can afford to lose a million dollars if it gets caught. So this is a rich person. This is a rich... Many rich people. Yes. And not only that, those shipments of a half ton or more are 70% of all all the ivory that's seized by volume. So so that's really the lion's share and the big organized criminals who are doing the most damage. So that's why we focus on that because poaching is going on all over Africa, but we wanted to see where are these big guys operating. And then we had a paper in Science in 2015, which was a, really a landmark paper because we showed that over the last decade, pretty much 100% of all the large seizures we did, now that wasn't every seizure that existed, or, or every seizure that existed, or every shipment that was smuggled, but of all the ones that we were able to get and analyze, over the last decade, they came from just two places. Now, what an epiphany, you know, because now you realize that you could, you know, focus on those areas, and 78% of the ivory was savanna elephants, focus mostly on Tanzania, going from northern Mozambique up through Tanzania into eventually southern Kenya. And you could see how it shifted because they were running out of elephants in the Salu. And then it's gradually moved northwards um, to um, moving into southern Kenya. So you could see how these hotspots are shifting, but they don't shift far. They barely, they, they, they really don't even leave the country. Um, and, and you could see the other big hotspot was uh, a place called the Tridum, which is the northeast part of Gabon, the south, um, the, the, the northeast part of Gabon, the northwest part of Republic of Congo, and the southeast part of Cameroon. And so that was the other hotspot. That was forest elephants, 22% of all the ivory over the decade came from there, 78% from East Africa. So now we see where these key places are, and, and that Tridomir was the last stronghold of elephants. So, so that was really important. Um, and the thing was, you know, you get these results and you're so excited thinking, oh man, this is going to have a huge impact. But you know, it didn't have such a big impact. Why not? It, because it turns out that, um, well, for one thing, the countries need to act on the information. Right, yeah, the government needs to act. But even when they do, poachers are really hard to catch. And they're really hard to have an impact at that level because these poachers, there's, there's a good number of them out there, um, and they are only though, poaching what they can carry. So even if you catch a poacher, you don't have that much ivory. You, there's never been a half ton or certainly not two tons or four tons of ivory at the source. It's always, you know, 10 tusks. 20 tusks, and when you catch this poacher, you put him in jail, he's either out tomorrow, or there's 10 others waiting to get a, to take, take over for him. But also, they're operating in really big areas that they know extremely well, and one of the things our early work showed is that they don't poach all over the place. They keep going back to the same place over and over again. It's got to have a lot of elephants, and they've got to be familiar with it. They've got to know how to get their ivory in and out. They've got to know where the, you know, they've got to have relations with, with corrupt wildlife people that they can pay to tell them when the when the, the, the troops are there. You know, all this stuff goes on that makes a, a place where you're working a hot spot one you don't want to move from. 
And so they're very, very slow to change. And that means if you can figure out where a recent seizure came from, chances are they're still poaching there. So I, all this was, was, you know, part of our story going, so man, this is going to make a big difference here. And not only that, but we also were able to quickly show that the ivory was being smuggled out of a different country from where it was poached, almost always. And that's a risk reduction strategy. So if you imagine you're law enforcement and you don't have these DNA tools, you're just using the bill of lading, the paperwork that accompanies the shipment, you're, you're looking in the wrong country. So being able to uncover these early strategies was really important, but because these poachers know that are, are, are in small groups, they only have as much ivory as they can carry, they know the area well, they're hard to catch. And, and, and that meant the, the effectiveness of this tool was still limited. And when they, when they get their ivory, what happens is you've got this group of middlemen that are moving in and they're getting the ivory periodically from the poachers. They're buying what tusks they've got money that they can buy, they, they can afford, and they're getting it. And then gradually over time, there's maybe another kind of bigger middleman that comes in and grabs from his group down there and consolidates it and it keeps doing that until it gets up to the big guy in another country where they consolidate two tons of ivory, four tons of ivory to move it out in a container. Well, it turned out that we, we had a really lucky breakthrough and, you know, we, we kind of knew this stuff was going on, but, but, but we hadn't really been thinking about that yet um, because what what happened was um, when we go to sample a big seizure, there may be a thousand tusks in a seizure. That's that's not uncommon at all, and we want to um, we, we can't afford to do all thousand all all one thousand tusks because it's about a hundred and ten dollars a tusk to analyze. So one of the first things we try to do we develop a way to representatively sample the seizure so that we only can take take two hundred tusks out. So to do a full seizure costs about $25,000 if you include travel and everything else. Um, but part of it, the first thing we do is we try to find the tusk pairs, the two tusks from the same elephant. So we can put one aside, so we only analyze the animal once. You know, otherwise, if you're taking 200 and they're and eat and they're all in pairs that means that you've got a hundred unique individuals instead of 200 it's much better to have 200 and you save a lot of money that's you know 10, 10 over ten thousand dollars that you save by getting the one of the pairs um excluded mm -hmm. so we developed a way to do that um that works really really beautifully uh, the first thing we do is we sample the tusk at the base we write that on the tusk when we're pulling it out of the out of the shipment, and then we align them from smallest to largest, so maximizes the chances the tusk is next to its pair. Then you go along the line and you make sure that the tusk is next to one of the same color, and there should be, if it's not right next to it, there should be one nearby if it worked well and the pair's there. So then you rearrange it, and then what you do is you look at the gum line, which is where the, the tusk protrudes from the lip of the elephant, and that distance from the base to the gum line is perfectly symmetrical in the two tusks and then you can quickly start pulling out the pairs and we noticed that over half the tusks didn't have a pair so we thought well what happened to the other tusk and um, we got home and then um, I had been, one of the people in my lab had worked in a forensic a human forensic lab for 16 years beforehand and he was with me sampling and we were both puzzling over it and then yes two days later he comes in my office he goes Sam maybe they're in different seizures and I thought oh my god of course and so we 
did the coding to quickly check every tusk against every other tusk, and boom, the whole pattern fell out like that. And we could see that we had 26 pairs in, in amongst 38 different seizures, and most of them were between uh, 11 big seizures that occurred between 2011 and 2014, which is when the peak of all the, the um, ivory trafficking was happening, and it was when we had the most comprehensive um, data for... Do you think they were putting separate shipments on purpose, or just No, because no, because that whole group, when the middlemen are buying the tusks, maybe this guy has enough to pay for one tusk, and this guy pays for the other. There's no reason for the two tusks to stay together, and frequently they get separated, very frequently, enough that we could see that many, mm -hmm. that many um, pairs between seizures, and every time there was a pair... They always went through the same port. They always were shipped close in time. And the overlap of ivory in those different, um, in the two seizures that match were very, very consistent, suggesting that this big dealer up there, and, and, it, and it ultimately you know, goes through all these middlemen, but it was coming to the same guy every time because they're like a mafia kingpin. They're competing to be the head of their cartel. And so there's not a lot of competitors there. So even though the ivory gets separated, it still ends up to the same big guy. And so we had two seizures, like seizure A and B were had matches anywhere from one to four tusks. And then B matched C with a bunch of others, and C matched D. And next thing you know, they all linked together like links in a chain, and the three biggest cartels just flew out at us. Those were data up to 2014, so in fact, um, the data was important for convictions of, of two of those cartels, and one, one of the biggest one was recently acquitted and is going to be retried, and our data will be very pivotal to helping um, figure out uh, um, um, a, a stronger prosecution for this criminal, because you know most of these criminals are nailed by financial crimes. But to do financial crimes, you got to follow the money. To follow the money, you got to know what's linked to what, and we know that now. And I'm guessing that prior to this, you, the evidence that you'd bring to court wouldn't really be able to put somebody away for a considerable amount of time. But when you have DNA evidence, you can do something. Well, yes stronger. and no. I, I think more importantly than that, most of these traffickers, when they are go to court, they're tried for one seizure. If you have multiple seizures, you've, you've, you've done transnational shipments multiple times. Now you can try them for a major crime, 20-year minimum. So Ma That makes a big difference. Big so difference. being able to show what's part of their allotment, you're saying. Yeah. And, and that is in part because of the DNA yeah, work Yeah, absolutely. Do. And being able to show the magnitude of what they're doing. I mean, you know, you think about it, you've got a jury there. And you want to say, this guy's just got this one seizure. He's going like Faisal. You could see him on camera. I've never, never seen ivories in my life, he said. But now we show him connected to 13 seizures. Give me a break. So what's the jury going to think when you've got this compelling evidence linking it all together? So Final question. But to bring it back, whales and elephants, obviously, or you know, you're you're dealing with these two endangered species that uh, are facing the, the you know disappearance of their population in total. Um, you have these breakthroughs, and you're excited and you're passionate. I mean, what's your hope, I guess, for the work and the legacy that you're you're uh, leaving right now as you're doing all this? Uh, what's your hope for both of them, for the southern resident killer whales and for the elephants that are a part of all the work you're doing right now? Boy, I, I wish I could say I'm hopeful. <laughs> Sadly, I'm not so hopeful. I, I, I just, you, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful it's not too late. That's my hope. For both? Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
Yeah. So for those people who also feel the same, I mean, this is probably a great place to end because there are a lot of people out there who feel like they're also losing hope and why bother? What's your message for why even get up? Oh, and, you and gotta bother. You gotta bother because we don't know that it's that it's hopeless. It's just you know when I'm you know doing all this work and showing what's going on and and you know it, it's so hard to work in this field. I, I, I you know the, the the competition just between you know law enforcement agencies that don't like to work with each other and getting upset with me because I'm not law enforcement and doing this stuff and they're not and and you know the the kind of politics that go on that make this work so much harder than it should be when you think about the amazing thing that President Obama did in forming this wildlife crime task force to cause all the, to, 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 to create a mandate for all these law enforcement agencies to pull together for their complementary tools to um, um, stop this transnational crime. And President Trump signed that into legislation again, which is very telling that both of them did that, two different, you know, a Democrat and a Republican, and, and because it's still such a priority, but yet, these law enforcement agencies, they don't really collaborate very much. Some are, may wor are way worse than others. And, and why? Because all of a sudden it generated all this money. And these agencies want to be the ones getting the money. It's just as pathetic. So, but you're, but you're going to keep going. Of course I'm going to keep going, and, you know, until I just can't stand it anymore. Yeah, but because I, I feel like we are making a difference, and it is really important. And it may not make the difference for this species. But for these tools, hopefully it can, can help other species. And just one, let's end on one species now, the pangolin. Pangolin is an animal the size of a cocker spaniel. There's eight species of them around the world. They're like an armadillo, an anteater. They, they, their hair is modified into scales. It's now the most poached animal in the world. There are some seizures that we've seen with 17 tons of pangolin scales this animal this big they're wiping them out what do people want them out. for they they're used for medicinal purposes now um they're cures they they say cures everything from acne to bone cancer you know and and um these tools are there's an urgency around these situations so we're working as fast as we can now my graduate student hj kim is this is her phd work and and um we're trying to create you know get genetic markers applied to all eight species almost there and we've trained detection dogs to find their scat and moving them around africa and asia to build this map so that we can start um nipping this in the bud before they're gone but even maybe too late for pangolins too but the next species thank you for everything university of washington biologist and all-around superhuman, the only guy who can out-talk me, and uh, he needs his own radio show. Thank you so much. Thank you.